welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And this podcast, we will be covering the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. In this episode, we will be talking about Weird War Tales number three with a cover date of January, February 1972 on sale November 18th, 1971. As far as the cover detail, there's a banner on top that reads, the third gut-grabbing issue of Weird War Tales with Weird all in red. And it's 52 big pages for only 25 cents. Don't take less. Yeah, don't take less. And uh, what jumped out at me right there is just the number 52 with recent DC history. But, you know, that's because I've been reading comics for too long. The image on the cover, I'll let you describe. Uh, well, the image on the cover is uh, two downed airmen in a small life raft. With, it looks like they've been out in the... Uh, out in it for a little while, a little like a sail and a mast and everything. And there looks like to be some sort of seaweed humanoid creature coming out of the ocean, coming towards them. And one of the airmen in the raft sees it, he's not too terribly sure about it. <laughs> yeah, now that raft to me looked a little small, but what do you think? It's, well, it, it'd be a survival raft. I mean, if, if these guys are airmen, you know, it's most of these things will probably be built for one person anyway. So this isn't like a ship life raft that will hold 25 people or anything. This be for like one, maybe two people. So that's probably about the right size, really. Yeah, I guess as we'll find out, it does come from the inside of a plane. So space is at a premium. It's just from the cover, I guess, other than, you know, it being labeled, it's, it is labeled like U.S. Air Force. So you could pick up on that. I wonder where they got the stick to make their make. <laughs> but, uh, you uh, know, it's balances. Uh, Driftwood. Maybe it was uh, maybe it was an ore or something. Probably not. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, you're, you're not supposed to notice things like that. You know? Yeah, it balances the image out. So it's it's Joe Kubert doing his thing. The things that he does so well. So, all right. After the cover, we'll get on to our mission debriefings. Beginning with, I'll take the first uh, three-page framing sequence that is, as usual, written and drawn by Joe Kubert. And I have named it, Listen it doesn't have a name, but these things are generally named after the last thing that the host creature or narrator says at the very end. So the synopsis of this first framing sequence is as follows. An American plane crashes into the ocean and the one conscious airman gets himself and his friend into a life raft. After drifting at sea for a while, a floating humanoid seaweed monster rises out of the water, advising the airman to, and we have the, uh, as I mentioned, the last panel, the seaweed monster says, take heart, young warrior, all is not lost. You are not alone. The deeds of brave men lost in war's holocaust float on the silent waters about you. You do not see them? Perhaps you do not even see me then let me tell you of the others listen <laughs> yeah like this is you know kubert doing kubert stuff i mean this is you know we we every every episode we have the the joe kubert fanboy party and this is no different this is joe kubert doing joe kubert stuff i mean the art is phenomenal uh, one of my favorite panels is the uh, the panel where the uh, where the plane ditches into the ocean and there's the wingtip breaking off and the water spray and everything else it's 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 just a, a hell of a look it, it, it's a great visual uh image you know depicting the moment a plane smashes into the ocean at you know 140 knots or whatever the whatever the speed is yeah the you way know? it's drawn you can you can feel the weight of that that aircraft hitting the water you almost don't even need the um really cool sound effect of 
<laughs> but you know, if that was a silent panel, you could feel it anyway. I mean, Joe Kubert's just the whole page is pretty much silent except for sound effects. And again, it wouldn't really need them. But you know, th- this thing works without anything else other than the drawings. And there really isn't another word until the final panel on on page three. A lot of this story is completely silent. The whole first page has no dialogue. Second, there's no real dialogue until that final panel, and it doesn't need it. I mean, my my favorite panel is of course the seaweed monster rather dramatically rising out of the water in front of the conscious surviving airman and the way his hand is held and all that i can almost hear like the beginning to michael jackson's thriller or something (laughs) but it's just a great drawing it's sopping wet seaweed monster that i think predates swamp thing you know but looks a heck of a lot like what swamp thing would eventually look like rises up out of the water and just starts narrating at this guy Uh, you you are you would know more about swamp thing than i would that's more your wheelhouse but like I said, this this issue is from '71. I I would dare guess Swamp Thing was probably out by then, but I honestly don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a close one. I'm I'm in a, I'd, I'd have to do some actual research, and I'm not I'm not doing that before the show. Come on. <laughs> so after that, we go to the first uh, full story in the issue, and you can take it away. Hey, been here before, or as uh, the actual issue that this came from. I've been here before. I never get why they feel the need to drop one word out of the title when they do the reprint like this, but it's uh, from GI Combat 44, January 1957. This is the first DC issue of GI Combat. All there's previous to this were printed by Quality Comics from 1952 to 1956. This is written by Bill. I finally got credit for Batman Finger and illustrated by by uh, Ross Andrew and Bill Esposito. And uh, the synopsis is a young boy is playing war alone outside his family farm and keeps imagining new scenarios like Calvin as his parents try to call him inside for dinner. Years later, as a soldier in an actual war, he ends up in one of the same scenarios he imagined before as a kid on the farm, and he thinks, hey, I've been here before. This is this is pretty relatable. I mean, because really, who at some point in their life doesn't grow up, grow up playing soldier at some point? You're running around, just like in one of the, uh, the first panel that you see, he's running around with a stick that kind of looks like a rifle and he's diving behind trees and he's going rat tat 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 and you know shooting at the imaginary bad guys in the, in his farmhouse and everything i mean what guy hasn't done that <laughs> really so it's like it, it's very relatable it, 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 it's a it's a fun story you know he pretends to take out a nazi machine gun nest in a, in a barn he pretends to engage uh, a tank hidden in a haystack oh, where have we seen that before uh, yeah it's becoming a theme <laughs> uh, there's a bird flying overhead it turns into an enemy plane diving on him so he you know he shoots at it and shoots it down yeah it's like um it's like any chance he gets to distract himself from being called in by either of his parents like they'll call him in and then he'll notice something at, you know little tommy will um will notice something that he uses as an excuse to add one more piece to the war he's imagining in his head so he doesn't have to go inside and we like i said we've all done it i mean like you know, oh, the yeah. is, you know who, who everyone plays army who, who plays sailor no one <laughs> i played I, I played pirate <laughs> same but, uh, yeah exactly so you did have a little uh a little killjoy was here for this one though yeah well the funny things is at the very very end of the story you know it's uh and actually you you noticed this one panel says but nine years later another voice summons him and his dad transformed into his sergeant and the very next panel after that it's for 10 years later 
Tommy is a real soldier in a real war. I'm like, well, which is it? Is it, is it nine years or is it ten years? That's that's just sloppy writing right there. If you Tommy can't. is a Tommy is very slow to respond to commands. You can't if the writer can't keep track from one panel to another. That's that's just messy. But um, yeah, my 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 killjoy moment was okay for the sake of argument. Ten years later. So let's just say it's 1945. Tommy was pretending to kill Nazis in 1935. Well, okay, that's very you know clairvoyant of you, but uh, you know credit where credit is due to the creative team when you're when you're flipping through the story, the 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 tank that Tommy engages as a, as a as a kid and the enemy plane that he shoots down. There it's a Panzer one and a Stuka, and both of those German pieces of military hardware did exist in 1935. So hey power to them <laughs> yeah got, i mean that's cool they're they not expecting <laughs> they're, bill finger's not expecting anyone to do the math when they read this story you know I'll, I'll give him that you know it's just we need time for tommy to get old enough to go fight in a war so i'll say nine ten years or whatever and move on I, you know it was it was it was a it was something that made you shake your head as an adult and blink a bit but i don't think any kid reading this would have noticed at all and of course it ends with make war no more as all these stories do oh yeah when they get reprinted, because the original said it says the end, and the reprint says make war no more, and the coloring is a little off. They change up the coloring. And actually, the the coloring in the uh, in the reprint is actually a lot better than the coloring in the original. You know, the, uh, the original there's you know oranges and blues and stuff like that, and then the reprint it's actual you know hey the leaves on the tree are green and the wood is brown and the sky is blue. So okay, well now power to the guys that recolored this story for the reprint because they did a better job than the original guys did. Yeah, there's a period in, in comics, I think, where that is one of the major advances you're going to see is coloring technology and what can come through in the final printing process and they can rely on making making the journey all the way to print. They become more confident. So I think in a lot of these reprints, one of the things you'll probably see is a lot better coloring job because they just have better technology and, and you know a better chance to express themselves. So, you know... <sighs> Again, it's a it's a Bill Finger story, and we all love Bill. We all want good things posthumously, retroactively for Bill. But once again, I I thought this story was kind of eh. You know, it was it, it was perfunctory. It was a little better than the last one he wrote because at least you had the fun of the kid playing make believe, kind of juxtaposed with the real action of the war. Other than that, most of what I got out of this was the art. I thought you know the art team, Ross Andrew, and that just did a fantastic job. I, I like the opening panel with Tommy and the image of himself as an adult in the background like a ghostly figure. I just liked really every panel except I will point out on uh, what is it the second page second to last panel there's another one of those shots that we've called up before of someone holding a gun really close to their face when they're firing. If you see that like yeah (laughs) well that that could just be a perspective shot because he's laying on the ground in a, in a, in a shell crater or, or something like that. That could just be an attempted perspective. But yeah, I, that's just a guess. I don't I don't know. It is, it is kind of a weird panel yeah. when you look at it. But I really, as far as commendations, I really liked how this, this just evoked, as you mentioned in the beginning, this evoked Calvin and Hobbes doing his Spaceman spiff or one of his many... <laughs> You know, Calvin doing one of his many imaginary, you know, uh, play sessions in that strip. So, and this kid even had red hair. He looked like kind of a young Calvin to me. You know, he had he had light colored hair, and so that that was cool to me. That Bill Finger wrote something that reminded me of Calvin and Hobbes. Well, the uh, the original, usually the headers change between the reprint and um, the original story. That's probably why they changed it from "I've been here before" to 
been here before is because I've got taken up by the floating seaweed monster's head in, in the reprint. So, but in the original, you know, like I said, when we hold, when I said this whole thing was relatable, the original starts, what boy hasn't imagined himself a soldier, brave, untiring, resourceful, a hero on the battlefield. Tommy was like any other boy in this, but what he didn't realize was that his dream would become real. I've been here before. <laughs> See, that's a cool intro. I like that. I mean, we obviously need the seaweed monster's floating head to to give us a new intro here. But that see, I'm glad you have all these originals because it is cool to hear the you know the the text that was there to begin with. And I actually like that a lot better. That's it fits the story, of course, a lot better. For our next story, we have the cloud that went to war. It's reprinted from the second story in Our Fighting Forces 17, also published January 1957. It's a Dave. Wood, Ross Andrew, and Bill Esposito joint. And in this story, a cloud rises from the sea, then travels through the war, giving cover to a besieged American fighter plane, helping out some potentially exposed paratroopers, and then becoming a rain cloud to relieve some parched soldiers stuck in a lifeboat, there's another lifeboat, before returning to sea, only to rise again as an innocent cloud once more. So literally, it's a cloud that goes to war, and you have the environment in intervening to affect the lives of mostly American troops. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cool little story. The art's fantastic, but there are some, uh, there are some points where uh, Killjoy is going to be here and shake a finger. So go ahead. Oh, of course. Well, the uh, first page, you know, there's a, a P-38 with like one engine on fire and he's got uh, two fuck wolves on his tail, only they're not fuck wolves. They're ME-109. So they were that classic, you know, gaff that happens all the time in these books. For shame. Doom. And um, I don't know if I've ever, if I've said this before, but you know, the, the, the one thing that irritates me a little bit about, you know, the, the old war books is they slather swastikas on everything that's German, just so you know it's the bad guy. And the only thing that's worse than slathering swastikas on the bad guy is slathering backwards swastikas on the bad guy. <laughs> Because the, the um, it, it, it's going the wrong direction, you know, and they're they're it, it's it's like almost like it's a mirror image or something. The uh, the angles are like 180 degrees off, and Man. you see that a lot. Wrong plane, yes. wrong swastikas, <laughs> killjoy all over the place. What the heck, man? Yeah, of course, I didn't notice that at all. I mean, like if you. You tell me the swastika's going the wrong way, I can be like, oh yeah, it looks a little more like the symbol for the band DRI than it looks like a swastika, I guess. But that would only make sense to uh, someone that grew up into hardcore punk like me. But um, Not me. I-, I couldn't have told you that to begin with that didn't jump out at me at all but i have not studied this iconography as deeply as yourself other than that though those points i mean is there anything else for killjoy no that's that's the only thing um i mean mean, everything else nothing else like jumped out at me you know from 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 the killjoy uh, perspective keeping in mind it's you know it's it's a war book obviously there's there's all kinds of highly unlikely stuff jumping out at you anyway but those are the ones that that just bother me the most i guess is as good a way of saying it now anything stand out to you as far as changes from the um the original to this reprint the um well, the original, you know, again, you know, the box, you know, in, in the reprint, you know, it's the floating seaweed head, you know, talking about the churning waters of the sea gave life, blah, 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 blah. But this one goes, it drifted high above the world below. In time, the bellowing white mass in the sky would prove a haven to some, to others, a place of danger, for it was the cloud that went to war. 
Yeah, again, I like that better. But, you know, of course, you have to... You got to reel in the seaweed head. Yeah, you have to keep the, the conceit going here. But um, it, it, it is cool to hear the uh, the original intro. It's just, you know, it serves the actual purpose of the story better. I got to say, I've always been a mild booster of Ross Andrew. But as I discover his art and these weird war tales, I'm becoming an even bigger fan because I saw mostly his superhero work in the 70s and 80s. Andrew and Esposito worked together a lot. (laughs) That's good news because this story looks really cool. I mean, this like usually it's almost like, you know, where one went, the other went. Because you see Andrew Esposito all the time in, in the old DC War books. They worked yeah. together a lot. I've got to check out the Spider-Man comics and stuff that I, I read with, with Ross's art and see if Esposito was still hanging with him then. Because there's a superstar team, in my opinion, that I, I have not been consciously aware of until right now. So that's this is becoming a pair I'm going to look for because the, the inking, I mean, you have three, the three opening panels have a cloud, con- you know, like, coming together above the ocean and they're they're still cool to look at like that's those are not three panels that every artist can make interesting evaporation condensation forming a cloud and then three planes go zipping into it middle of a dogfight <laughs> yeah, the storytelling is awesome too like even that that panel with that trail of smoke leading you to the damaged american plane flying into the cloud the depth of field it's it, it, these guys andrew and esposito just high marks i really like the story too i i really like um you know following the cloud through the war and the different ways it affects these people's fates and you know how the cycle just starts all over again at the end and we make war no more this this was a this was a good one for me yeah. i, I really dug it yeah i mean like you i I like the art and everything the story i didn't like the story as much i don't know just because i guess it's whether it's more random it's more you know happenstance but i I mean like i I like the art there's there's two there's a a couple of panels there's like uh we've mentioned the paratroopers before i was like on the what the one two three four the, the fifth page it's like a couple of panels that kind of like blend together. Of these oh, yeah. Paratroopers charging out, out of the fog, you know, weapons blazing and everything. And that's a pretty, you know, you know, a pretty, you know, intense uh, scene right yeah. there. Guns, guns blazing and everything else. And Again, so much storytelling in one panel from this team. Yeah, it's just, it's really cool. I, I also, Doug, like, I, I should mention the, the way that this story tied into the seaborn theme of the framing sequence right down to the lifeboat appearance. So some thought was going into picking this reprint, or at least it seems so. It, it's a happy accident if it is one, because finally we have a story that actually ties into what's happening to the poor suckers in the framing sequence. <laughs> yeah, seaweed guy can be all like, you see those guys in the life raft? Yeah. I saw those guys three weeks ago. Yeah, I told different stories. I didn't talk to them. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't talk to those guys. You know, whatever. So, you know, we we wrap this one up, and unfortunately, we have a feature that, um, if you want to talk about it, cool. <laughs> but it's a uh, another creepy core. It's another four one panel humor feature by cartoonist John Costanza, and I only found one of them even remotely funny with a, a so called joke about a mummy. Uh, you got yeah, like a, a soldier digging and. And yelling to his sergeant saying, hey, Sarge, I just hit something hard in my foxhole. Maybe it's buried treasure, huh? And there's a mummy rising up by him. But that, other than that, these so far, these humor features are not exactly 
qualifying for the category. No, there they are. You read them. Okay, whatever. Move on. I don't know if I've ever gotten a chuckle out of them. I'm just no. Like... So I took that bullet so I could hand this next story completely over to you because, um, man, this is your, uh, if I didn't give this one to you, you would take it from me. So off <laughs> you go. Through the mic and take it away from you. Justifiably. Yes. Okay, the next story, it's called The Pool. We believe that this is original. We can't find any references to this being a reprint anywhere. Uh, it was written by Len Wine. I think it's Ween, but, you know, I've heard Wine and Ween. He, um, he recently passed, and, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of his writing outside of this stuff. But uh, I, was, I was very glad to find his work here. But, uh, yeah, I think it's Ween, but whatever. Okay. So, anyway, it's written by him and uh, Marv Wolfman, an art by the immortal Russ Heath. And... Um, yeah, and let me just say, you know, you know, we have the Joe Kubert love, and we have the Russ Heath love. I, the, the, the art is just unbelievable in this story. Uh, the synopsis, it starts uh, 12,000 years ago. A group of cavemen lost in the desert find a miraculous pool of water, and during World War II, a group of American soldiers do the same. And as the story goes on, the cavemen are attacked by another tribe, and the Americans are attacked by the Germans. In the end, everybody dies, and the pool waits. Hell yeah. And it's being, I, I just, I really just don't have words for this story. Just the imagery of like the cavemen, uh, uh, the one tribe of cavemen that shows up after the first tribe is at the water hole. They're just heaving rocks down these guys and just, you know, the, the, the bodies flying all over the place and the muscle, the, the way the muscles are drawn and uh, just, you know, the, the shadows, the hand-to-hand combat, the fury on the faces, the knives, the, the pistols being used as clubs. It's, it is a, you know, a, an incredibly, you know, intense hand, hand-to-hand combat. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really hard-pressed to think of any time I've ever seen hand-to-hand combat drawn as savagely as I, as you see it in this, what, six-page story? Yeah, this it's, it's very believable. Um, you know, just there's no, like, grandstanding feet seven, you know, feet seven feet apart, big haymaker punches. These are real people fighting, tackling each other, trying to survive. And like you mentioned, the storytelling here, there's only narration captions, and they're cool, but again, they're not necessary. Russ Heath is right up there with Hubert in so many ways, and one of those ways is his grasp of visual storytelling. It's, you don't need any any of the words that are printed in this story to follow along in ways I thought it would have been more powerful without them. You don't even need the time frames printed. You get that these are cavemen. You get that these other guys are modern day soldiers. But I'll, I'll get to you know um, I'll just I'll just say it here. Like beyond that, beyond the storytelling, the visual design of these pages blew me away. There's one element that goes through every page here. So you have the individual panels and they're floating on a background of other panels that highlight the other other timeline like when you have the cavemen on page one there's four panels of their journey and behind them forming the background of the page are three oversized panels of the world war ii setting so it's story the 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 balance between the timelines is actually visually represented more than just by altering or alternating from one page to the other they're both timelines are on every page. It's just the other one is the background image. And I've never, never seen that effect used yeah. anywhere. Yeah, like what you just said, yeah, the cavemen are fighting to a, like superimposed World War II, Korea, World War One, war on land, war at sea, war in the air uh, imagery. And then the 1943 one, it's dinosaurs or, or, or sharks or you know, pterodactyls or prehistoric 
uh, Animal Combat. Oh yeah, such cool dinosaurs drawn by Russ Heath too. <laughs> even even though I'll, I'll I'll give them you know I'll give them this just because they're so cool. But you know we have a caveman tribe, and then you're showing me images of dinosaurs. Those don't match up, but damn, they look cool. So I'll, you like I'll mastodons so, and saber tooth tigers so many times. It's like um, <laughs> it's like. Am I doing a little killjoy here? I think I am. I think I've got the killjoy was here moment for once is that he's showing creatures that uh, couldn't have been alive at the same time as cavemen, but I am absolutely not going to hold it against him. This well, is Well, it's it's not like the creatures are in the same panels as the cavemen. It's just super it's, it's just what the the World War II fighting is superimposed on. But yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, as I said, those these are some of my favorite pages I think I've ever seen in any comic book. So I am I am absolutely fine letting that go. Yeah, I I, I can't say enough about it. That that's easily the highlight of the issue for me was this story like oh, yeah. I mean, those six pages yeah i got yeah it's good that you have a killjoy was here because you know i had nothing <laughs> i had nothing on yeah well you're not as nerdy about dinosaurs as i am so <laughs> nerd! exactly yeah I, i'm definitely um and in, in the traditional sense the far bigger nerd but um and, and that's why i let you have that story and i'll take the next thank one thank you very much yeah, yeah. The next one I'll take as an even further demonstration of my grace, because it ain't as good. It's called Combat Size, and it's reprinted from the third story in Our Army at War, 66, from January 1958. It is written by Bob Haney, who I tend to love, but I don't like this story. But on the plus side, we are back to Russ Heath on art. So the synopsis here, such that it is, is that a new fresh-faced soldier begins to feel smaller as he gets close to the action and eventually shrinks to a few inches high or so. He has various run-ins at this size, but acquits himself fine before making a stand against a fighter plane at the end and growing to mile high size. So it's basically a metaphor for how you might feel small when you're faced with real action, but as you soldier on, so to speak, you uh, can eventually feel like you're a mile high. And it's a little packet of propaganda in the middle of this comic. And, you know, it is what it is. The The drawings are inventive. The art is great. It's Russ Heath. He does good stuff with the visual trick of the supposedly tiny soldier against the regular-sized opponents. And, you know, that's really, for me, the only redeeming feature. So uh, <laughs> you want to drag out Killjoy and shoot some more holes in this thing? Well, the, uh, going back to the, um, uh, the, the, the box, you know, that was in the original. Oh, yeah. Is, um, the, the, the original says, the sergeant told me a soldier is a mile high as long as he keeps fighting and advancing. But I couldn't tell him how little I felt in my first action. No one would believe my combat size. And you were you were joking before because you, uh, you said the, the the placement of a floating seaweed head in the reprint is <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. That's my favorite part of the story, actually. Other than the fact that the Russ Heath art is great, Mike. What I enjoyed the most is so the opening page of the story is one giant panel, and it shows a supposedly uh, gigantic or normal sized Nazi soldier firing at our miniature soldier who's standing inside a footprint, and the blast of the gun hitting the side of the wall of that footprint the little soldier standing in has the seaweed monster's head 
floating in it. Like it's like it just popped up out of the explosion. And he's saying, through the waves of time, things that appear to be reality may indeed be illusion, such as the tale of a soldier's stature, which all that would have been better above the words combat. Yeah. But this, that, the, the fact that the seaweed monster's head is just popping up in the air, like the ricocheting <laughs> bullet out of the, the Nazi's gun was hilarious to me. Like they could not think of a place to put this at all. So they were like, ah, what the hell right there? Pop. So that, that to me, I mean, the drawing itself is great, but, and I'm glad the original book exists that doesn't have the seaweed monster's head here, but that is also kind of hilarious. That's the good thing about having the originals because there's been a couple of times where they've taken out a, a, a vital piece of the plot by going, you know, floating seaweed monster head or the desert hag or the old man in the, in the house or something yeah, like so that. far the worst example of that is the reef of no return where they just don't even tell you what the deal is why they want to blow up that reef but i'm still having trauma from that story <laughs> yeah the um as far as uh, as far as killjoy was here on this one the uh it's 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 minor I mean, like i said you know this is russ heath i generally don't have very many complaints about anything russ heath draws but the very very last panel of the story you know it's this like you know the gi is a mile high and and he had just shot down uh, an, an attacking enemy fighter with the with a with a captured German machine gun. And the, the the funny thing is, the machine gun in the mile high soldier's hands looks like it's a, it's a pop gun, but that gun is still bigger than the enemy plane that he just shot down. <laughs> By you know, it's it, it's it's just kind of like a weird, a yeah, weird even even adjusting yeah. for his supposed mile high stature. I mean, maybe the gun feels bigger too now that it's you know now that it's soldiered on. Maybe it also feels a mile high. You know, it's not just the soldier man. Like even his an, his his gear is affected by his bravado. Who knows? Or maybe Russ Heath just said, "Hell with it, I'm done with this story." Last panel, I'm done. <laughs> I got I got to go draw some stuff for Playboy. <laughs> Yeah. Now, as far as a high point for this one, what'd you have? Oh, um, the, uh, there's, there's this one panel on uh, the page before the last page where uh, the GI, you know, threw a grenade that looks no bigger than attack. But when the grenade lands on this uh, German machine gun nest, which is where he captured the machine gun, it's again, it, it's just the, the imagery of, you know, there's the, the helmet is getting blown out of the explosion. There's shrapnel holes getting ripped through it. You know, the machine guns getting knocked askew you know, all the smoke and the dirt and the, and the, and the flame and everything. I, I think it's a very powerful, well-drawn, well-drawn uh, panel uh, of, of, uh, of the combat. Yeah, I don't that, disagree. That's one of, my, one of my favorite panels. Yeah, this, this I don't story. disagree. You're absolutely right. But I got to tell you, when I got to that panel reading this story, probably prepped by the seaweed monster's head, this panel made me laugh because the helmet's flying up in the air. There's no sign of the soldier at all. Like he's been atomized and the helmet's flying up in the air. And all I could think of was like, like, Woo-hoo! you know like some kind of goofy noise or something it was just that panel made me laugh but i think i was set up for it by that bouncing seaweed monster's head i oh. thought he'd show up again right there you know like like ha ha well we you know we, we've, we've discussed this before in, in, in earlier podcasts where it's just like you always know that the bad guy is dead when his helmet falls out of the tree or when his weapon falls out of the tree or you know something like that it's like oh he's gone so like i guess that you could that you could make that comparison uh in that panel it was what there goes the helmet Heck yeah, <laughs> I, 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 that is a great panel. I, I love it. It's, it's again. I, I do like the fact that the, you don't even see the body, but there's so much smoke and you know fire and you know and, and the explosions obscuring that. So I, I, that's one of the things. 
if you pay attention to the DC war books is they did that a lot in, in, in combat. You almost never saw a body, you know, uh-huh. I mean, it, it, American enemy, you almost never see a body. You see like the helmet, you see the falling out of the tree or the weapon or, you know, some piece of gear or something like that. It, it, it was actually pretty rare to actually yeah, but, yeah. see a casual, uh, to see, to see a dead body. That's so the that code, one, yeah. The code was still around, so yeah, they, they have, have been, to... Yeah, approved by the Comic Code Authority. That may have been part of it. But there was that issue um, we, were, we were talking about yesterday with the... With the, um, uh, the where they the got two, the, the two brothers in the B-17. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and at the end, you know, the plane lands and the two brothers are lying dead in the fuselage and the pilot's like, well, who fired for Nick? And so that, that was actually one of the rare occasions where there was actual you know, bodies in the panel. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, Nick is firing over his dead brother's body in a few panels in that story. Yeah. So yeah, it is unusual, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Well, after this one, we have a one-page text story that I'm assuming you read. Yep. Uh, behind the lines... Uh, three quick true stories of quick thinking U.S. military types. Uh, next, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right. well, since um, since you know you are the one that takes the bullets, so to speak, and reads those little text stories, and I do not, I'll also let you have what I know you really want is this double page spread that's coming up next. So take it away, man. Okay. Next is it's uh, a battle album. It's called Flying Guns. It's uh, written and drawn by Sam Glansman. So yeah, this this is a really good issue. We got Joe Kubert, we got Russ Heath, and we got Sam Glansman. You know, my, yeah, you're not hating this one. My my big three, pretty much. And it's um, it t- it talks about the it's the evolution of aerial machine guns in in World War One, a German, American, British, and uh, it's again, it's just it, it's a two page spread, and it's of a Newport 28 that is smashed into no man's land, and there's uh, there's a couple of victorious German planes flying overhead, and it's uh, it's an American plane. It's the, the Hat in the Ring Squadron is is uh, denoted denoted easy for me to say on the side of the fuselage, and uh, it's it, it the the pilot is burning up you know in the, in the in the wreckage of the cockpit. Oh yeah, he is. Speaking and, of bodies on panel. Yeah, and it's I've seen enough of Sam Glansman's art with you know, with his work in Haunted Tank and the USS Stevens and everything else like that. I've gotten to the point where I could recognize his art by simply looking at flaming bodies on a panel. If that's not <laughs> grisly, I really don't know where to go with that. But uh... that, is a fa- <laughs> that is a fantastic detail, and I'm sure it would probably make him proud. <laughs> But 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 Sam just kills this. I mean, there's 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 ribs of um, of the aircraft's wings, you know, sticking up out of the ground, punching through the fabric, flames and smoke, and, and cylinders from the engine, and you know, barbed wire tangled up in the landing gear and bullet holes in, in the tail surfaces. And it's yeah, it's, this would it, not it, this it, would it, not make a, this would not make a really good recruitment poster though. Come fly with us. <laughs> Oh, That's God. what I thought when I saw this. I'm like, wow, this is you're you're not trying to recruit with this image. It, it it's amazing, but damn, this is like, hey, think about it before you get in one of these seats, you know. <laughs> well, well, that well, you know, here we go uh, going all history on here. The um, the casualties, you know, among the the uh, the British, uh, you know, fl- uh, the RF RAF Royal Flying Corps, you know, especially during bloody April uh, April 1917. I mean, the squadrons were going through. I think there was like some squadrons that were there were like three, four, five hundred percent casualties. I mean, you know, you know, some of these guys didn't last very long at all. And and the, and the fun quote quote fun thing to remember is that these guys didn't have parachutes. 
I mean, the, the British had this attitude of, well, well, A, the parachute is additional weight, you know, that slows the plane down. But they also had worries that, you know, if the pilot had an easy way out, he would, you know, he would just jump and he wouldn't stay in the fight. Oh, so there were like any number, there were, there were undoubtedly thousands of guys that needlessly died during World War One because they didn't have a parachute. I mean, they let the guys in the observation balloons have parachutes, but they didn't let the guys in the planes have parachutes. And if you're, if you're on a plane that catches fire, you have two choices. You could ride that fiery comet to the ground, or you could jump. And a lot of guys <laughs> chose to jump. And well, well, what 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 choice do you have? Do you want to burn up, or do you want to have a couple of moments of relative peace before this that sudden stop? Yeah, well, looking at that guy that's in that plane right there, uh, I think the choice is clear not to try to ride it to the ground. He is not having a good time. Yeah, definitely not. So I, I'm I'm amazed that this hasn't been turned into a poster either by DC Comics or by you yourself. <laughs> when I saw this image, I'm like, how have I not seen that hanging on Rich's wall for the past 30 years or whatever? You know, like because there's so many of these battle albums throughout the DC War books that there's there's too much to choose from. Oh, so this is this is a series they keep doing because oh, yeah. these are this oh, is great. You're, you're going to be seeing you're going to be seeing a lot more of these probably. This was one of my favorite parts of the whole issue. I mean, probably you know it's 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 such a showcase of the art, but but also just the the little educational blurb telling you about the development of machine guns that can operate using um what is this thing called an interrupter that let you know we take it for granted now but let the bullets fire between the rotating propeller on the plane so the, it wouldn't shoot your propeller off when when um, aerial combat first started i mean originally these guys were just shooting at each other with like pistols or rifles or something like that throwing bricks at each other <laughs> Well, there was one thing they did was the uh, they would they would drag uh, kind of like an anchor, an aerial anchor behind them, trying to like you know snag the wing and rip the rip the fabric off the wing. There's all kinds of just goofy crap that they were. Oh my god! because the big problem was they have these machine guns, but you were risking the most effective way to shoot down an enemy airplane was to aim your plane at the enemy plane and shoot at it. But you're risking you know shooting your prop off in the process. Yeah. There was this one guy and he was named his name was Roland Garros. And he had this idea of uh, he would he fit metal sleeves over the tips of his propellers. And so the idea was, you know, if a bullet hit the prop, it would it would ricochet back. Of course, you're still playing the numbers <laughs> game. Uh, but sooner or later, you can only do that so many times before A, you break your prop off anyway, or B, perhaps more importantly, you get the ricochet right back at you. I was just thinking <laughs> of that. I was like, do you really want to bounce it back though? But uh, well, eventually he. Um, he got shot down. The Germans captured his plane before uh, he could destroy it. And they, uh, they they saw what he was doing. And they were like, screw that. There's a better way to do that. And, and, and Anthony Folker designed this interrupter gear where the machine gun wouldn't fire if the prop was in front of the machine guns. And the Germans had a field day for, for a couple of months in the air war until the Allies captured one of these interrupter gears and made their own uh, version of it. Yeah, you can see the results of that field day in this drawing. Yeah, that is not good news. No, not at all. Yeah, this this is an amazing piece, and you have you have the image of the plane down. You have the educational blurb, and down below you have four diagrams, four call out pictures of different machine guns from different models of of planes. I imagine, or or just you know different guns. It's just it's there's so much in this one two page spread that all, I, all these machine guns were used. Uh, the Spandau, the Lewis, the Vickers. All these planes were used on the ground, and they just got adapted for use on an airplane. They got there, they got with the interrupter gear firing through the prop or they were, they were uh, fired from behind by like the observer 
uh, some aircraft had a had a gun that was mounted on the top of the upper wing, so it was firing over the arc of the propeller. You know, that was that was uh, something that they did. Of course, the downside of that was it was up high enough. Some of these guys had to stand up to shoot, and with almost predictable results here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. That's something I really want to read more about: is the early history of airborne warfare, like the stuff you were talking about in the beginning, where they're dragging anchors on each other, throwing bricks, all that stuff. Like that is what I wanted because I know very little about that and that just sounds like it's pure chaos but it's also just kind of awesome that they're like i see that guy he's in another plane i'd really like to hurt him bad so <laughs> i'll pull out my gun i'll throw an object at him i'll i'll drag an anchor across his wing this is just incredible to think about yeah well it, it's a hell of a time period obviously when they're figuring all this stuff out but yeah so yeah we'll, we'll be seeing a lot more of these battle albums hopefully as as we move on into that that is exceptionally good news and we, like look at that one two-page spread and it's the thing that we probably talked most about in the issue that's how good that is is like I you know I say that you know one of those earlier stories was my favorite thing in the issue it was my favorite full story was the pool and it's it's still toe to toe with this two page spread but this for two pages you can't get much better than this so not to set up the next story for failure but I'll take I'll take what's called pilot for a sub. It's reprinted from the third story in Our Army at War 68 from March 1958, and it's the return of Bill Finger with artist Mort Drucker of Mad Magazine fame coming back and Weird War Tales. And I like this one a lot better than the previous Bill Finger stories. I actually was quite fond of this story all by itself. It only seems like a, a slight like disappointment or because it comes right after that battle album spread. So the synopsis here is you see a shark blown up by the detonation of a mine that's in the path of a submarine. You know, they're clearing the way and they're blowing up these mines and some poor shark gets, you know, eliminated by that. And the shark's pilot fish is left all alone without a shark to hang out with. So it adopts the submarine and it follows the sub along and witnesses all of the subs ensuing battles as the fish guides the steel shark along the way, or at least it feels that it's doing so. And it's a, it's a cute little story that I could see being like an early Disney movie when they didn't care quite so much about, uh, you know, showing more gruesome stuff on screen and whatnot. Like, you know, Bumby's mother gets shot and the shark gets, that shark is blown away in the, in the second panel and it's lying on its back, just eh, dead. <laughs> open and everything. <laughs> Man, like it is it is tragic but uh, the drawings in this it's more drucker it, they're really cool that the battles from my non-history expert perspective are were awesome to watch like drawing a sub at war has got to be difficult and every panel of this just killed i loved it and the poor little fish following this sub around while like torpedoes are flying everywhere and depth charges are going off ships are exploding and you know at the end it's like very proudly leading its submarine the fish actually saves the sub at one point well if it, it feels that it does again this the, this the fish is just sort of there but um it, it's it, this is a cute little story i did not expect to find a story i would say that about in weird war tales but here it is i i had a lot of fun with this one yeah the, this the sub got damaged and it was it set down for, for it got trapped in a coral reef and then they couldn't find a way out so there were frogmen outside and the, the, the pilot fish is just you know swimming away and they're they knew the pilot fish was out there so they're just following the fish and the fish leads them out of the reef and gets them back out and out into the open wait 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 you're telling me it was almost the reef of no return eh? <laughs> come on crickets. Crickets. it's a call back to the reef of no return man. <laughs> crickets. 
See, this is why they destroyed the reef. Because the sub, the sub came back and said, screw that. <laughs> Damn fish. They were looking to get rid of this pilot fish. They, they left one fish alive. They weren't just blowing up mines. They were looking to exterminate marine life. The, um, the, the, the banner in the original, you know, goes, uh, they were the strangest combination that ever cruised the seas. A giant submarine and a tiny fish. But war makes startling partners. Pilot for a sub. I love that. I love that. So it makes me like the story even more. I, I really dig it. Like you, you say that the, again, the colors are better, but one thing I will note is that you have NA written next to Killjoy was here. So this, this story is historically accurate. The pilot fish has no Killjoy marks against him. I'm just saying that nothing horrific, you know, lunged out at me. I mean, <laughs> if, 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 if you're going to make me play that game, okay, I can play that game. You know, I've mentioned before, you know, how anything is German, they have swastikas slathered all over it, or they do the same thing with the Japanese. They have the red meatball on the fuselage and on the tail. They don't put, they never put it on the tail. Okay. <laughs> you See, mean, I knew I could, I knew I could go Jin to find something. <laughs> <laughs> Max wants to be difficult. Okay. Game hey, it's, a, it's a story yeah. with an animal in it. So yeah. I am going to be homering for it so hard because I'm a big softie for animals. So this story gets like all my booster energy that some of these other stories like the pool and the battle album don't need any help from me. But you put the cute fish in the World War II story and I'm showing up to defend it against all comers. And it, it was a good story anyway. I, I liked it. But man, you know, I, I've, I'll, I'll say my absolute high point was, again, I could even kill Joy this a little bit. But um, it's the smile on the proud pilot fish's face in the final panel. It could just be the angle of the fish's mouth, but he is absolutely supposed to look like he is grinning proudly as he leads the sub out of its, you know, danger in the reef to safety. Yeah. Well, it's funny that we're, we're on the same page when we're talking about facial expressions because the floating seaweed head here, it's got like this weird little slight head tilt going on and it's got this, uh, you know, like, you know, like, like <laughs> even the, the seaweed head's like, oh man, I don't know. It's just, it, it's just the worst. <laughs> this is like the worst seaweed monster head. See, the entire book is the one that starts. <laughs> I didn't notice that until I read it in your, uh, your, your part of the script here, but it really does. It, it has the way the mouth is the mouth part where the mouth would be is is shaded makes him look like he's 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 like you said he's just going i don't know here's the story it's got a fish in it it, it, it starts like <laughs> it starts like this and it, man but that 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 opening page with the ship and the explosions and the fish below with the sub it's just mark drucker just kills it here he's i did not even know he drew weird war comics and he is one of my favorite artists in these three issues it's it's just so cool to see him just coming in here and nailing it down and so <laughs> that story wraps up with a very proud little fishy and again we're in the sea which i think is the reprints are chosen very well here because we jump back to the end of the framing sequence and you can bring it home. Hey, this is, uh, we're, we're back to the seaweed monster talking to the one conscious uh, airman, you know, wrapping up the tail. Uh, the the airman is you know begging him to stay and help, but the seaweed monster pretty much says, ah, you're on your own, bud, and farewell. You alone are your fate's adversary. And the, the two survivors are rescued, quote unquote, weeks later, four weeks later, and when asked how they survived, they say, rainwater and that seaweed, it kept trailing our raft night and day. The weeds attracted small fish. We ate them raw. Besides, we made up our minds to cheat the fates of war. 
So the the, uh, the guy's wounded buddy, he made it also. So the two of them made it. I will say one thing. Like, I mean, like, if these guys have been on a raft for a month, I don't know when they had the time to shave <laughs> because, you know, they don't have a whole lot of three-day growth going on here if they were in this thing for a month. <laughs> but, but that's just my – what just one person's opinion. That counts but, as a killjoy. <laughs> Yeah, man. Uh, Again, it's Joe Kubert. We're going to say this a million times. Every panel of this thing is fantastic. There's not one phoned in panel, even one panel that's mostly black ink still sets the tone of the story. It provides the perfect story beat to go with that narration to, to mark the time on the page. Everything this guy does is literally a masterclass on how to make a comic book. I mean, there's a reason he opened his own school about how to make comics and the thing is still in operation. It's it, it is. Yeah. It's this is incredible stuff. My high point visually, if I had to pick one is what's it? The, uh, the last panel on the first page where the seaweed monster's hand is reaching down to kind of touch the back of the conscious airman's head. And he's saying, Miracles stem first from a man's own efforts. You alone are fate's adversary. Farewell. He's like you said, he's saying, see ya, buddy. I can't help you because I'm probably a figment of your imagination later. But that panel looks so much like someone receiving a benediction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you know, you, you turn water into wine, but how about you turn uh, salt water into fresh water? Could you do that? Hey, that's another <laughs> great that's another great thing I, I loved about this. Again, I think there's more thought going into choosing the reprints and working them in here because one of the things that helps them survive is rainwater, just like it did in the cloud that goes to war. So we have we have tie-ins going on here, and I can't believe they're accidental with someone as good as Joe Kubert at the helm here. Like for once, the framing sequence is actually interacting with the content. Well, it's 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 issue three, so maybe they're fine. They're starting to work the framing sequence into some of the stories. Hell yeah. Just a little weaving in and out. I'm definitely seeing, especially, and it jumped right out at me every time I encountered it in this issue, that there was a lot more play that seemed to be a little more carefully selected content. And and just the whole issue, just this was really starting to gel. Like I enjoyed the first two issues a lot, but this was like like an evolution. It was a step up in just the craft of it at all and I, and the content was a lot of fun too man that 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 the pool that's going down is one of my favorite pieces of comic book work i've ever seen well, yeah, the, and, and it's it's one of those stories where like the more you look at it, the more you see just just the detail work. I mean, like as the as the combat goes on, the uniforms of the of the of the two twentieth century combatants become all tattered and torn and everything else like that. There's stuff in the background. There's there's people strangling each other. Just just like I said, just just incredible. You know, you know, spears sticking out of uh, out of Caitlin's bodies laying on the ground next next to the pool. They're just the savageness of of the hand to hand combat. That's portrayed in that story it was just now you go back like you said you you can just read that story over and over again and new things jump out of you one thing that i started thinking of is what's going on in the entire image behind the central panels you know those background images with the alternating timelines because i know that they drew the entire image. I don't like, we're ta- yeah, we're talking about an artist that isn't going to phone anything in. And I know that somewhere there's the entire image that those panels are floating over. At least, at least the pencil layouts are, are, are complete somewhere if, if these pages survived at all. And that's what I started thinking about was like, man, I wish I could see the rest of that. So that's, <laughs> that's more than most little six page stories by anybody will ever do to you. You know, this, this, that just, 
that's like I said, in, in in the middle of Weird War Tales number three, I encounter one of the fav- one of my favorite things I've ever read in a comic book. So so that that right there makes this a, a prize issue for me. Yep. And uh, on that lofty note, we're gonna we're gonna go to something a little bit lighter. We like to talk about our favorite ads in the comic, and um, we're gonna keep it to one favorite ad each for a bit. Uh, trying to kind of notice we're running a little bit long. Yeah, we're running a little long. We're we're playing with the format here. So we each picked one favorite ad, and I'll let Rich go first. Well, this was one that I saw in um, the, the episode from the last podcast. We just didn't get to it. It's uh, it, it's right after the "Been Here Before" story. It's at the top of the page, and it's "Be Taller." If you could grow two to six inches taller in one month, would you spend twenty-five cents to discover how? Fantastic new method of growing taller. Quick, safe, and permanent. No exercisers, appliances, drugs, or elevators. Send 25 cent coin for how to be taller. And it's the Height Increase Bureau of Brampton, Ontario, Canada. I'm like, yeah, I got to look this up. (laughs) (laughs) Did you look up the Height Increase Bureau? I Actually, I did. I, I, I I couldn't find them. I could not find them. I just, yeah, I imagine something like this. They may have deliberately not, you know, covered their tracks or something. Did you, uh, did you, did 49 you try, years ago or something? I got, I got to ask you, did you, did you try looking up? I, I did go, I did look up the. Uh, <laughs> no, I, you, oh man, oh. the whole the stupid joke. <laughs> did you try Wait. looking up yeah, to yeah. see the height increase bureau? Well, it's your, your. I am just killing it this episode, man. I am bringing the jokes. <laughs> yeah if, if, oh you want, if, you want, if you want to call him that <laughs> the height increase I, was, I was disappointed I, I i did look up the height increase bureau you know if you know, in ontario canada and yeah just just nothing i couldn't find anything it was talking about oh the metric system in canada and you know blah 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 and it's you know lose weight this way and you know just nothing at all like what i was what I was looking for, which was unfortunate. I would have loved to have actually found an article for that. But uh, if, if, like I said, if for nothing else, the height increase bureau. But, yeah, uh, that, that is something, oh. man. <laughs> that's, that's out there somewhere. Someone knows the truth. Like, and what I find cool about that ad is you see, again, the cultural differences. Like, of course, you know, everyone still generally wants to be taller, especially if you're a dude. That's still very tied into, you know, traditional BS machismo and all that. But back around this time, you also had ads and all over the place for, you know, too skinny will help you put on weight. And that's very different than what you see out there now, you know? So everyone wanted to be taller and to be skinnier. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a very different time. And that's what I dig about getting into these ads. Now, mine, I, I had to go for a house ad for another DC publication. There's a ton of great ads in here, but man, there is a full page ad for Jack Kirby's in the days of the mob and spirit world magazines. Now, these things, for a Jack Kirby fan like me, they are kind of legendary. They only lasted one issue each, and DC was kind of embarrassed of them, it seemed. They, they put the company name Hampshire Distribution Limited on the covers instead of, you know, DC Comics. And one rumor about that that goes around is that Carmine Infantino disliked the whole project and sabotaged it on purpose. I mean, he was also not rumored to be a fan of Kirby's special treatment at DC where he didn't have an editor. He edited his own books, stuff like that. There's a lot of, you know, uh, like kind of storytelling about Carmine very much not 
being a fan of Kirby's stay at DC and kind of cutting them down at every chance he could get. But, you know, I wasn't there. And a lot of people that tell these stories weren't there either. But still, that ad to me, I'm looking at it right now, just the, the scroll special announcement. And they're trying to act like, you know, this is your your chance to, to get a hold of these precious magazines. It says, we deeply regret that due to the fact that our new magazines in the days of the mob and spirit world sold out so quickly, so many thousands of you, our loyal readers, could not get a copy. Now, that is utter BS. Like They barely even tried to sell these things and the few copies they had, they didn't even care about apparently. So here's their last ditch attempt to sucker some people into buying these magazines they don't want to sell. But um, from what I've seen, the, the few, um, I, I don't own these books, uh, but I've seen some you know articles about them online. Uh, they were really cool and they should have gotten a chance. Like this, it, you know, Kirby breaking into mob stories and ghost stories and in the magazine corner of the market, these really could have blown up. But you know, uh, if you believe the stories, Carmine didn't like it. I mean, the covers aren't that great. It comes from like, I think Kirby's uh, playing around with collage imagery that he was getting into. Like he did some great work inside comics with collages, but these covers look sort of like the first draft yeah that was that was my my big ad in the issue well, I'll, I'll just add on two two quick little things on that it's like one falling under the category of people I've, i met and got autographs of I, I got infantino also on a couple of the old star spangled war stories and stuff you were with me i was there yeah 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 boston, well the uh, boston comic cons or something it's probably one of his last shows or something like that he was looking you know, pretty advanced in in age you know when we were there yeah so, i remember he actually he actually uh he <laughs> He actually get, like uh, tried to get us a bit. I think he did put us off a bit because you put your autograph book down and um, to an, to a page, and he goes to sign it, and then he stops and he goes, "Hey, what's this?" He's like, "This Julius Julius Schwartz is on this page. He's dead. What are you trying to say?" <laughs> and then his handler's rolling his eyes, and then Carmine goes, "Ah ha ha ha! I got you!" And he signs the page, and it was just fantastic. I mean, I, I got it to to clear the air. Like, <laughs> Yeah, to clear the air, I love Carmine's art. I'm a huge fan of his work on The Flash and Elongated Man. I loved his art in Dial H for Hero. I am a big fan of the guy's art, so I don't want to just have all my audio in this episode be about rumors about Carmine being a joke to Jack Kirby. But yes, I was there when you met Carmine. And the uh, the other thing is, you know, even if I wanted to uh, order one of these magazines, the coupon that you have cut out to mail in, you turn the page and it's part of the pool storyline. So I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not cutting out that coupon. I'm not screwing up that yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even note that. Like this comes in the middle of the pool. That's happened a couple of times where you see something that's really cool, but the coupon that you have to cut out is like in the middle of a story or it's like the back of the freaking cover or something like that. Maybe that's why they put the ad here because they're trying to get rid of these magazines and they're like, let's put it in the middle of the best story in the issue you know and that's that brings us and maybe that's why i was drawn back to it other than my you know gigantic jack kirby fandom um but drawn back to it because it's in the middle of the pool and it's one of the best stories i've ever seen in a comic this was a great issue i'm psyched to get into issue four but i'm also like man this is a hard act to follow so we'll see what it brings and i guess that'll wrap up this episode of weird warriors and until next time Make war? No more.